Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. When the course is laid and the anchors wave, a sailor's blood begins racing. Every storm we ride is its own reward, and people die by falling overboard. People die by falling overboard. And that's my co-host, Jack Snefflin. <laughs> <laughs> if we had to think of movies as hometowns, Mom Treasure Island is very much one of my hometowns. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, trash for me as a person. <laughs> Thank you for joining us this week for the final episode of our boat bracket. This is the second life raft episode. We're talking about Muppet Treasure Island and Hook. Both of which are uh, only in part take place on a boat, which is one of the reasons why they were not in the bracket. But they're nice, chill, relaxing movies to close out with. They're both very fun, very watchable. A lot of nostalgia in here. And also they're interacting with the kind of swashbuckling adventures that we didn't really get many of on the uh, bracket, but we think of as being boat things. Yes. It's fine. Yeah, I mean, really, we got pirates and then a little bit of that ma- Master and Commander, but it was more ranged ship combat with, like, cannons and stuff. Yeah. I'd argue that uh, Speed 2 Cruise Control has the chassis of a swashbuckling movie, but it's set in the modern days, so there's less swash and buckle. Yeah. Somewhere between, like, a swashbuckling movie and, like, a Steven Seagal movie. <laughs> God. Anyway, why don't we go ahead and talk about the films we're actually supposed to talk about this week. Nah, that doesn't sound fun. So go ahead and tell me about Muppet Treasure Island. Uh, Jim, Rizzo, and Gonzo are three orphans living at the Benbow Inn, feeding off of table scraps and trying to uh, keep old Billy Bones from getting too drunk. Uh, when one day, uh, a group of fiends break into the inn, Billy Bones tells them where to find his treasure map before dying of a heart attack in a kid's movie. The inn burns down and the children decide to follow the treasure map to the lost treasure of Captain Flint. Their motley crew is mostly organized by a man who lives in a rich half-wit son's finger and the definitely not a villain cook, Long John Silver. Silver and Jim bond as he starts to drift away from his friends Rizzo and Gonzo, but when they finally arrive at the island, Long John Silver is revealed as a mutineer and takes Jim prisoner. The crew, including Captain Smollett, Rizzo, and Gonzo go to rescue him, uh, running into Captain Smollett's old lover... Benjamina Gunn. A wild chase all over the island ensues, and uh, most of the pirates are uh, captured to be taken back to England for, for a hanging. Longton Silver manages to escape, and Jim lets him go with most of the treasure, which winds up at the bottom of the sea, as the leaky lifeboat is taken down with it. He manages to swim to the island and regrets his choices. It's your basic Treasure Island adaptation. Uh, there's a few changes to accommodate the Muppet actors as well as to tone things down for children. A few Australian characters are cut. We, we kind of talked about this a little bit with Treasure Planet. Mm-hmm. Same kind of concept. Mm-hmm. Honestly, the biggest change here is inclusion of Rizzo and Gonzo, who are functionally just extension of Jim Hawkins as a character, but they add a little more dynamism. And then uh, making Ben Gunn into Benjamin Gunn and Smollett's old lover. Other significant change is how they deal with Arrow. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, they're not going to kill off a named Muppet character in a, in a Muppet movie. So... Arrow was just put on a lifeboat to test it for leakiness and is off the plot for a while. And then comes back. Yeah. And honestly, I think it's a good choice. Bringing that character back reintroduces some plot elements that work well for just the flow of who's where and who knows what. Mm -hmm. It leads to them being able to use Sam Arrow as they dress him up as his ghost to frighten the pirates off of the ship so they can take control. Boogie, boogie, boogie! I am the ghost of Samuel Arrow. Boogie! 
it's a really good way to weave this character back into the narrative. Does a good job setting up the concept of leaky lifeboats that will inevitably wind up uh, being a problem for Long John Silver at the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Good foreshadowing. But also, can I talk about this, how this movie has just the omnipresence of death for a kid's movie? We've got Billy Bones dying at the start of the thing. We've got threats of death hanging and all that jazz. We've got everything assumed and having a funeral. And then coming back into the ghost of Samuel Arrow. It is remarkable how not afraid of talking about it they are mm-hmm. for this movie. Like, I think that... It feels very atypical for kids' movies, especially kids' movies now. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is is because there's no way to completely take death out of the narrative for Treasure Island. And so they kind of just have to lean in mm-hmm. and make it wacky and over the top in order to make it work. Muppets, that's what they typically do. Right. And I think Gonzo being just so jazzed about the idea of being tortured and, and murdered is a way to kind of help with that. Do it to me. Whoa! Oh! Yes! Look at this! I'm taller! This is so cool! <laughs> this won't work! He likes it! It gives kids a context by which death can be fun as opposed to terrifying. Mm-hmm. Which, pros and cons there, but I think that is a good choice for this movie. Mm-hmm. Contrasting it against Muppet Christmas Carol, they do a similar thing, but instead of Death, they do it with poverty and like exploitation of workers. And Tiny Tim does die in one of the timelines, but it's it's very talked around. Mm-hmm. It's a very soft, gentle thing that's given a lot of weight. The way Tiny Tim's sickness and death are treated in Christmas Carol is like diametrically opposed to how death is treated in this film. Yeah. But I think it works for those two separate narratives. Oh, absolutely. I do actually really like the dynamic between Silver and Jim is not quite as strong as Silver and Jim in space. Look at you. Glowing like a solar fire. You're something special, Jim. You're going to rattle the stars you are. But it is a good dynamic. I do genuinely believe that Tim Curry is torn between wanting this treasure but also caring about Jim as a character. It's very different here than it was in Treasure Planet. Why... Silver cares about Jim. I think in Treasure Planet, he cares about Jim because he sees that he's had a rough go of it, that he needs a father figure and comes to care about him. I think here, Silver softens to Jim because he sees himself in it, and it's kind of just an extension of narcissism. Ooh, I like that a lot, actually. That tracks for this Silver. This Silver is very full of himself, as he should be. He's Tim Curry. Yeah, Um. Tim Curry is... A fucking treasure here. <laughs> what a what a great choice for this role. Mm-hmm. This might be my first Tim Curry, honestly. Mr. Clue. Not a bad Tim Curry. I think my first Tim Curry is actually probably Ferngully. Mm, that tracks. I think it's kind of interesting how many human actors we actually have in the narrative. We, we have a few more than you would typically get in a Muppet film. You do get like a few human extras for the pirate crew, but we also have Billy Bones is played by Billy Connolly. Mm-hmm. And we have uh, Jennifer Saunders as Mrs. Bulfridge. Mm-hmm. Both of them are out of the plot pretty quickly, so like it kind of makes sense. And if our two options are to have Billy Connolly here or not have Billy Connolly here, <laughs> I'm definitely going to <laughs> like say, yes, keep Billy Connolly. He's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And Jennifer Saunders does a pretty good job with what she has to do. Not yeah. much, but you know. I do really like that she gets to fight for the kids. Like, she gets to have this, like, 
very fun physical presence. Mm-hmm. You really need that for a Muppet movie. You need all the human actors to be as much puppets as everybody else. Uh, does unfortunately skirt into some fat phobia territory a little bit, but it is definitely not the worst I've seen. Mm-hmm. Not the worst I've seen on this episode. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of comparing and contrasting this but and Treasure Planet because both of us love Treasure Planet. It's probably one of our favorite adaptations of the story, and we also have already talked about it on the podcast. Hell, it might be one of my favorite movies in general. But I do think it's interesting the different way that these two films show why Jim's life sucks and why he's so interested in leaving. In Treasure Planet, Jim's life sucks mostly due to his own bad choices Mm -hmm. him leaving is in part a punishment whereas here jim's life sucks due to circumstances beyond his control he's an orphan and he needs to work to earn his keep and so when given the opportunity to leave on an adventure it makes perfect sense because it couldn't get much worse than where he's currently at Mm mm-hmm Because of that, it informs the two characters very differently, and that's one of the reasons that their relationships with their respective Silvers are very different. Mm -hmm. And I think Jim's face is probably a stronger character than Jim here. Oh, definitely. fine. Like, the the actor's doing a great job doing his own songs. Good job. Holding your own in in songs next to Tim Curry. But still, he's... Yeah. Yeah. I think part of it is they split the Jim Hopkins character of the book into... Jim, Rizzo, and Gonzo. Mm-hmm. Instead of the original plan, which was to have Jim and Hawkins be Gonzo and Rizzo. Mm-hmm. Kevin Bishop is doing fine with what he has. He's by no means the worst child actor I've ever seen, but but like you said, there's just not as much there for him to do because this character's been split into three. Mm-hmm. But Gonzo and Rizzo are really fun to have around, so I think it creates a cumulative fun experience. Muppet films always tend to skew the protagonist role over onto... Muppet actors. Mm-hmm. So here, Captain Smollett gets a much bigger role than you would typically see. Ben becoming Benjamita changes the plot quite a bit, and there's a lot more significant uh, stuff going on there. I think it's a good narrative change. Like, even ignoring the whole Kermit and Miss Piggy thing, I think it just makes these characters a little bit more interesting, gives them more depth than just some guy who is also on the island. I do think. That, unfortunately, Jim suffers for it, though. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit of a trade-off. It's also truly wild to me that this movie makes it canon that Piggy has, like, banged three characters in it. Oh, well, hello, Lonjun. Oh, no, him too? Well, if you married me... Going back to Mr. Arrow, I love that Sam the Eagle is just so ready to jump on board to totalitarianism. It's a very pleasant, quiet critique of America. Yes. And honestly, I'm not certain I would have caught it if it had not been for recent events. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that uh, is more, you know, for the dad to the audience uh, Yeah, this movie. Like at one point, someone asks why Longhead Silver doesn't have a talking parrot, and Polly the Lobster says, What an imagination. First pirates, now talking parrots? What's next? A singing, dancing mouse with his own amusement park? Which I didn't get as a kid. Yeah. All right. I've given this movie enough praise. I need to talk about my biggest annoyance. Mm -hmm. I hate Mr. Bimbo. That's fair. Yeah. It just seems so odd and out of place. Like, it's just a step too far for a Muppet film. I don't think you needed it. You could have just had Fozzie be 
a rich halfway son. Yeah, you didn't need that extra level of wackadoo. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, other people reacting to this delusion just kind of screeches a lot of scenes to a halt. Mm-hmm. And it's not all that funny. Mm-hmm. They don't really dig into it too much, so it's not quite to a level of like hashtag problematic in terms of like neurotypical rep, but mm-hmm. it kind of leans into that a little. Mm-hmm. But also, you know that if this was made today, there'd be like a scene where Mr. Bimbo is a vision he sees in his mind who like talks to him and is like, I don't know, a Muppet bear floating, giving him advice, voiced by Danny Trejo or whatever. This film would do its best to make you believe that it's real, or it's at least real to Fozzie. You will believe that a Bim can bow. Yeah, I think there are some aspects of this that don't really work all that well. Like, the idea of... The Hispaniola, this boat that's going on this epic quest that is kind of well-known in popular culture, also being a cruise ship for rats. That's a fun idea. I don't know if they really do much with it beyond some like visual gags and some stuff to break up the scenes we can have a transition from one to the next. It plays a little bit into some one-off jokes. I- I- honestly, very similar to the stuff we got in Hotel Transylvania 3. Mm-hmm. But I-, I think they needed either more or less of it. Mm-hmm. It also comes up quite a bit in the musical numbers. And honestly, there are some musical numbers that are just not really doing much and probably could have gotten cut. So we have two crowd songs. We get Sailing for Adventure and Cabin Fever. Sailing for Adventure is great. It is a excellent, bright, the high seas, high energy number that's going to interest us to everyone on the boat and also all the parts of the boat. Good choice. Cabin Fever is just the plot spinning in circles for five minutes while the boat is in some doldrums, mm-hmm. which... Could be fine if the point was to show how bored these characters are, but I don't want to be bored. I want to have something else happen. Like, give me any other thing there. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a good place to develop character, and I don't do that. Yeah. Cabin Fever just sticks out like a sore thumb because it doesn't really do anything. It doesn't move the plot forward. It doesn't expand character motivations or internality. Like, it's just not quite as fun of a song. Mm-hmm. It's kind of catchy, but it's not quite as... Listen, I opened with Sailing for Adventure, not Cabin Fever, if you'll notice. There's also some other great songs, Shiver Me Timbers, which opens the film. Amazing. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's actually as prominent in the movie, but if you listen to the like soundtrack version, there's this like sweet guitar riff at the end of the first uh, chorus, and I'm like, mmm. We also have Professional Pirate, mm-hmm. while Silver is trying to convince Jim to join his side, which is also fantastic. This is his only number. Mm-hmm. And I actually kind of like Boom Chakalaka. It's it's not overly long. It is high tension. It's kind of fun. Like, it's just a good, like... Yeah. Yeah. If Cabinet Fever was more like that, I wouldn't have a big problem with it. But it they make such a big deal out of it, and they draw it out for too long. Whereas Boom Chakalaka was just ratcheting up tension to the reveal of Benjamina. And it's relatively short. I will say, this movie is interacting with the history of, of indigeneity and broadly uncontacted cultures of the Caribbean in ways, and I don't feel equipped to talk about them, but it raises interesting questions about if you take it to its logical extreme, then are all pigs equivalent to like native Caribbean peoples? And if so, what does that mean that Miss Piggy was a rich French woman while also being a person native to the Caribbean islands? And where is that story? That sounds amazing. <laughs> That whole thing and kind of insinuating Miss Piggy as, at least in this narrative, a pig of color. <laughs> it's it's a lot. We're not going to unpack it because I, I think we have now thought about it more than the movie did. Yes. And there's other things I want to unpack with Miss Piggy first. Yeah. But someone out there could write like a doctoral thesis about this movie. And I want to read that. 
The thing about Miss Piggy that I want to talk about, Frank Oz wasn't here to puppeteer because uh, he has other commitments, so he dubbed the lines in later. So he told the stand-in to think of Miss Piggy as a truck driver wanting to be a woman, which implies that, to a greater or lesser extent, Frank Oz's interpretation of Miss Piggy is that she's a trans woman? <laughs> or something to that effect. Not that not that women can't drive trucks, but if, if the two genders are truck driver and woman, that implies... Now, I don't the whole thing, which is wild to me, that that's just sort of sitting there as canon. And also, I'm here for it. I'm not saying that, like, this is amazing representation, but it is amazing representation. <laughs> the idea of a trans woman of color being also, like, the romantic interest for basically every important character in this narrative is truly wild. <laughs> Where is this reboot? Anyway, because of this, uh, this is now Disney's first canon queer character. I declare it to be so. I'm pretty sure Hunchback still uh, predates this. Does it? When is this from? This is 96. Oh, right. Hook is a 91 one. Never mind. <sighs> Gosh darn it. I'm trying to have enough with that goddamn gargoyle. Hopeless. Absolutely hopeless. You're telling me. I'm losing to a bird. Oh, and while we're on this one last thing, uh, I like that one of Miss Piggy's titles is Temptress. One last thing, like jumping back to musical numbers, I forgot to bring this up then. So one of the last songs of the film is Love Lettuce Here, which is a duet between Kerbin and Miss Piggy as they mm-hmm. are about to plummet to their deaths. And it's really good. It is really good, but it's intercut with the pirates fighting Flint's Lost Treasure and them just ogling and caressing all the gold. It works perfectly there, too. <laughs> Just this insatiable lust for treasure is what led them here. Mm -hmm. I am impressed with them being able to make that song pull double duty. And that leads well into kind of the comic styling of this movie, which are essentially, we have the main real plot and then the the fun plot underneath it for the kids. Mm -hmm. A lot of that with the rats, with some of the pirate stuff, with a lot of the off gags. Mm -hmm. Um, They are telling the main story, but the Muppets are kind of intruding in upon it. So this movie compares really easily with Mama Christmas Carol, the comments and two-parter, as it were, um, of being these Muppet adaptions of classic literary work. But I think, broadly, it's just not as strong as Christmas Carol. I think there's a little bit more plot happening here, and it's a little too fast, and we don't really dig into the characters as much. Yeah, there's a, I think there's a lot more chaff here than there was in Christmas Carol. I think part of that is just because Christmas Carol is much shorter than Treasure Island is, mm-hmm. so it's a lot easier to fit that into hour and a half to hour film Mm -hmm. there's also quite a bit more editing that has to be done for treasure island to make the plot friendly for children Mm -hmm. yeah they still do admirably i mean i think i know i like this as a kid it worked out really well Mm -hmm. but yeah yeah i don't think it's necessarily a bad film but if you put this directly up against christmas carol i think christmas carol is going to win right that said it starts as a very good summer movie the christmas carol is a winter movie but speaking of Christmas movies, let's talk about Hook. Yeah, it is kind of weirdly a Christmas film. I mean, not that weirdly. It's less of an American thing, but in the UK, Peter Pan is kind of a like traditional Christmas pantomime. Mm. So I, I get it. That was a reasonable choice. Mm-hmm. Anyway, a summary of the plot. Peter Banning is your stereotypical 90s dad without a work-life balance. His children are consistently a second priority after his legal work and corporate mergers. While the family travels back to England to visit with family and attend a orphan hospital dedication honoring their grandmother, Wendy Darling, yes, that one, the children are abducted by Captain Hook and brought to Neverland. Wendy reveals that Peter is Peter Pan, which he denies and ignores until Tinkerbell shows up to drag him to Neverland. Tink and Peter try to save the kids, but they're found. Hook is so disappointed that 
Pan can't give him a real fight, that Tink is able to convince the pirate to give her three days to whip Peter into shape. She takes him to the Lost Boys, and they help Peter remember his past and rekindle his youthful spark. The battle that was promised to Hook comes to pass, Lost Boys versus Pirates. Pan's side eventually wins, and Peter offers Hook mercy if he leaves Neverland forever. Hook tries to stab him in the back, but is crushed by the now taxidermy crocodile that ate his hand. Peter and the kids return home the morning after they left, with Peter having kept his new outlook on fun and imagination. So this isn't so much of an adaption of Peter Pan as more of a sequel yeah. to, to like evolution. It feels like two twenty somethings were giving Peter Pan were like told to just make a sequel of it, and they kind of went a little off the rails while doing so. Coming soon to a theater near you, it's the Equalizers, a weekly podcast where two idiots drop a cinema sibling in the lap of a perfectly content solo film. I do know that this was in pre-production for quite a while. Like they were talking about making this movie in the early eighties. So I'm not sure how early on the adult Peter Pan entered the, the narrative. But I do think it's interesting. I think part of the reason why they went in that direction, because it's fun to explore, what would happen if the boy who would never grow up did? Mm-hmm. He'd become a lawyer, of course. I think a lot of that works really well. It is odd that it also exists in a universe where Peter Pan was published, and we know who Jane Barry modeled Wendy Asher, and she's like a character in the narrative. It gets a little squidgy with like how that all works in terms of what is real and what is not, and how these characters' lives have been reasonably unchallenged by that. But yeah, yeah, having the mythology be real while the mythology is popularized, it, it makes for weird world building. It's not insurmountable, but it is weird. And to be fair, it's always been there for Peter Pan. Like, Peter Pan has always been this children's story, and then we find out that Peter is real when he shows up at the window. That's true. I guess recurring layers of that. There are a few moments that are a little bit hewing very close to the story that we could have not had. Like, we don't have to have Nana be a dog that is still around. But also, just while we're in that space... At one point, Hook references the idea that clapping will bring Tink back from the dead, implying that he is at least reasonably familiar with the standard play Peter Pan that happens, which implies that he may have read Peter Pan by Jam Barry. Has he seen the, the movie version from Disney? How does he feel about Peter Pan being played by a girl traditionally? If any of the Lost Boys and or Pirates are still around, how do they feel about that like TV show version where it was like Neverland but in space and that's really good? What's happening here? Like, I need, I need more time with these characters analyzing their existence in the meta. I doubt that Hook would have been exposed to any visual media for Pan, especially because he is completely unfamiliar with baseball. Sure. However, Hook is definitely the sort of, uh, like, narcissist who would own a copy of Peter Pan from the real world and, like, edit it to make him, like, the hero. Oh, Absolutely. Weirdly easily, I can imagine Dustin Hoffman Hook going looking for Peter Pan in the early days when he's gone to the, the other world mm-hmm. and watching a production of Peter Pan and critiquing the Hook that is like being like not realistic or something. <laughs> <laughs> like that episode of Avatar. Yes, Ember Island players. Also, Dustin Hoffman is the best Hook. Can we agree on that? He's definitely the best Hook that I've seen. I've not sure. watched many adaptations of Peter Pan. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much this and the Disney film. Mm, sure. I've seen a few... Musical adaptions, the one in space, Once Upon a Time, etc. I think this is the strongest I've seen so far. Mm. Dustin Hoffman has no problems playing Hook as this over-the-top fop. Mm -hmm. Which is how Hook should be played. Yes. And I specifically think he should be played that way because when he does 
switch over to being more cruel and vindictive and violent, it feels harsher and more scary. It leads you into this false sense of security, especially for children's media. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of always been the thing with, with Captain Hook and with the Pirates in general, they're the idea of adults who never grew up, as it were, but never grew up not in a, a healthy way. Mm-hmm. With Hook being this very childish man, like you know, very over-the-top, very dramatic, playing with his toys, etc. Yeah. Petulant. Petulant is a great word for him. A lot of discourse has been made about Hook and queer parallels, and reading Hook as dangerous stereotypes of gay men who refuse to grow up in a lot of jazz of it. Peter Pan syndrome is like a thing that people talk about within LGBT discourse. This movie broadly managed to not be too bad about stuff like that, and I'm glad for this. They do mostly avoid that. I also think one of the best scenes in the film is when Hook is de-wigged, because Mm -hmm. it shows you just how much of a charlatan he is. Mm -hmm. He cares about his appearance over his realness. Yeah. Gives you a lot more context for the character and honestly his motivations. He feels like a pretty real character, honestly. I think that maybe like really dig into him is this is that scene where he's playing the game of being suicidal without really being, as it were. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting scene that I think does a good job of telling you how overdramatic this person is. Mm-hmm. How it kind of lapses into feeling that life has no point uh, without mm-hmm. this very particular war that he wants to have. Yeah, there's there's a sense of nihilism about him. Mm-hmm. That scene also shows us how unwilling he is to take responsibility for his own actions unless they glorify him. Mm-hmm. Again, like just playing into this petulant, shallow man who refuses to grow. That scene also ha- does a good job of explaining why he and the other pirates haven't just left. Why are they still here on this island where presumably there can be no more gold to, ta- to capture? They are the only pirates. They must have it all at this point. Mm-hmm. What else is there? Hook is probably very unwilling to change, like, let go of things. It's an interesting conundrum because typically Hook is sort of built up as this stand-in for Mr. Darling. But that's really not the case in Hook. We Like, we don't really have any context for Wendy's father. He's not really in the narrative at all. Mm-hmm. And if anyone were an analog for Mr. Darling, it's Peter Banning. Mm-hmm. And you know that bit where Wendy... So, Peter, you've become a pirate. So giving Hook more depth and characterization, I think, definitely works in this film's favor. Now that we've talked so much about the titular character, why don't we move over to our actual protagonist? So Tinkerbell... (laughs) (laughs) I do have some thoughts about Tinkerbell, but I was talking about Pan. Yeah. Um, uh, played by the late great Rob Williams. I don't think this film would have worked without his portrayal. Like, I'm sure that other people could do it. I think that this, he was the best possible choice for this role for this time. Yes. The bit where he has completely forgotten who Peter Banning and his children are and is just talking to Tink and puts his nose on the like, door of her clock house. Mm-hmm. It's hard to describe. It's very good. He, he rests his nose on the threshold like a perch. Yeah, exactly. Why are you in Neverland? Well, that's easy. To always be a little boy and have fun. <laughs> I like this game. Ask me another one. Robin Williams is a fantastic casting choice, and I do think that one of the reasons that his portrayal works so well is because he's playing so off-type with Banning. 
Uh, especially banning before he gets to Neverland. Like, we see Robin Williams yelling at these children for acting childish, and it's... Genuinely upsetting? Yeah. <laughs> like, I straight up took my headphones off for some of that, because I was like, I, this is harsh. Yeah. Having Williams do it, it feels viscerally off and uncomfortable, and it plays into how stomach-churning that scene is. Mm-hmm. I think if we didn't have someone who was able to just get that harsh, the later scenes where Captain Hook manages to convince Jack to like go over to the side of the pirates wouldn't work. We had to yeah. have it like be that bad. This genuinely like borderline abusive character. And this film definitely understands Peter's psyche, both Peter Banning as well as Pan, and how diametrically opposed they are and how that is affected by time. This film is filled with metaphor. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it feels a little bit beat the audience over the head with it. Like the final fight that has that whole like, I believe in you scene that we don't need. Mm -hmm. We we, we get it. We get that the character's grown. I like the the subtle stuff more like at the start of the film, the the airline they're flying by is Pan Am. That was great. Yeah. Good joke. Jimmy Dean is a lost boy. That was, that's a fun little thing. So there's this one lost boy who is very intentionally styled after James Dean's character from Rebel Without a Cause. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't have any lies. He's just a background character, but it, it just works so well. Mm-hmm. Is that reference? I wonder if any of the other lost boys are references that we're not getting because we just don't have the context for whatever the outfits are. Mm-hmm. They might not be quite as iconic as red jacket, white shirt, jeans. Mm-hmm. Getting back to Peter, I think one scene that like best typifies this hesitance and denial in banning about him ever being childish at all is when wendy is first trying to reveal slash convince him that he's peter pan and he he's like standing there hands on his hips like arms akimbo sort of pose and wendy pulls out the book shows him the illustration with peter pan in that exact same pose and he immediately drops it Mm -hmm. like he doesn't want that association he's so hesitant to accept that as a reality and I think without all of that, the, just the film wouldn't work. This character is so thoroughly compartmentalized between his time as Pan versus his time as Banning. In fact, one of the smaller problems towards the end of the film is that he has shifted from one compartment to the other. Like he's completely forgotten about his children, and Tink has to convince him. <laughs> Tink, don't we have the greatest adventures? Do you remember your next great adventure to save your kids, Peter? Well, what are you staring at, Peter? Save them. Go save them. You silly ass, go! A thing that I think really works, that a lot of the second act is Peter Banning not knowing how to interact with this kind of fairy tale world, so he's threatening to sue Captain Hook, or offering to use his checkbook to solve a problem, mm-hmm. which is really good and a really good illustration of this character and how different he is and how well she doesn't get the rules of Neverland. Mm-hmm. One of the rules of Neverland I like is how clearly there's, there's a mind-affecting element to the place. Like Forgetting is a big part of what happens here, but no one ever says it directly. There's not, ah, yes, everyone who comes here forgets. This is the forgetting well where all the memories get drawn into or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just... It's just that everyone has written acted in a really good way to make that happen. Because of the like timeless nature, everything just kind of blurs together, and it's hard to keep a sense of temporality, which means memories are vague. Mm-hmm. It works really well. Last significant character we have to talk about is Tinkerbell. Mm-hmm. Who I feel like could have solved this whole problem. 
Tinkerbell is incredibly powerful, and I, I feel she couldn't trust you with the kids on her own. Tink is interesting. Uh, here she's played by Julia Roberts. I do think her performance is a little flat. Mm-hmm. I think that might just be because she's up against Dustin Hoffman and Robin Williams, who are dialing it up to 11. Mm-hmm. She's also doing most of her scenes on her own on green screen, as yeah. opposed to like being there with them. Apparently she had a really bad time with it, which most people do. Stop making actors film alone on green screen. She was also going through some personal stuff at the time, but she did not have a good time with a lot of the filming and the crew kind of resented her for some of the troubles she was having. It was not great. I would like to point out that most of Tink's dialogue, though, was rewritten in the script by Carrie Fisher, who unfortunately went uncredited. That sucks. Yeah. I don't begin to understand all the intricacies of billing and credits for Hollywood films. Like, that is a huge tangle of weird legality stuff so i don't know like the intent behind it or whatever but yeah it does suck that she wasn't given credit for some amazing dialogue from tink and just hit kind of a hard balance with tinkerbell because she's in love with peter pan who is a child but now is an adult and she also kind of served as his mother for part of his life because she like rescued him as a baby it's it's a little weird this movie is very weirdly horny Mm -hmm. so there's the whole like sexual tension between Peter and Tink, Mm -hmm. which is played up even more here because both of them are played by adult actors, and Mm -hmm. so it's less weird. Mm -hmm. It is weird in different ways. Yeah. We also have the sexual tension between Wendy and Peter, which is extra weird Mm -hmm. because there's now a huge age gap, Mm -hmm. and there's also Wendy was Peter's guardian for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And is also his grandmother-in-law. Then we have the marital problems between Peter and Moira Mm -hmm. due to Peter just being a dick and not prioritizing his children. And I will say, I like Moira. I wish she was... There isn't really time, but I wish she got to be more of a character in this. She exists to serve the characters around her as opposed to herself. I do think you could have incorporated her a little bit more and have her drug along as a, like, Wendy analog Mm -hmm. from the original story. I do think that the film is a little bit bloated in parts, and that would not have helped, though. No. Even then, like, she really wouldn't have that much of an arc. Right. Uh, I think that's more so due to her not having a very distinct personality to begin with, as opposed to her not having room to grow. And in that way, she's much like the mom from the original Peter Pan, who kind of exists to sit by the window and be sad. There is also the weirdness of Moira being the reason that Peter decided to leave Neverland. Mm, That's always weird. Yeah. Look at this hot sleeping girl. Yeah, I'm going to stick around for that. (laughs) Not great. There's also just the inherent weird tension between Peter and Hook. Yeah, I think that's the closest we get to the film and like the queer phobia that some people associate with Hook. But also it's just the inherent problem, like if you build your entire life identity around fighting a certain person, there's always a certain amount of foyer there. It comes down to like, hate is not the opposite of love. Mm -hmm. We're saying that like, there's a lot of weirdness with this film, but it's kind of just inherent to Peter Pan as a mythology. Yeah, and like, I also don't mind it. I think that anything where you combine the logic of a fairy story for children with vicissitudes of real life and adulthood... Um, you're going to get weirdness, and that's fine. Like, honestly, this movie is better for being weird than for not. Like, all the pirates playing a very violent version of uh, baseball, excellent. That's exactly what should be here. Mm-hmm. He's stealing seconds! 
We're playing this game according to Master Jack's rules. Bad form. All the fun, weird stuff that they've done to kind of expand the Lost Boys to be a, a bigger colony of people. Also really fun. I like that a lot. Like the skateboard. It's very 90s. It must be that they keep getting new Lost Boy arrivals in Neverland, and they always bring the new games and the new toys, and they propagate throughout the entire community. I think that's really neat. We actually have not talked about Rufio yet. <sighs> Rufio. <laughs> what a good character. <laughs> He's a great character. I, like, I am also aware, not personally, that he was an awakening for many young people. <laughs> that may well be true. <laughs> I didn't see this movie young enough to know if that was a thing or not. I will say that his midriff is pretty midrifty. It sure drifts. I just think it's hilarious that Dante Bosco got to be a teen heartthrob twice, once here and once in Avatar The Last Airbender. Uh, that's Peter Pan syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I also really like that the Lost Boys are somewhat multicultural. Yeah, that's good. It's definitely the sort of tokenism that we got from early 90s children's content where they tried to have diversity but didn't really do anything with it. Mm -hmm. And it's probably not great that a big part of this movie is a white man returning to retake his throne from the man of color who subsumed him. Yeah. But it's also really cool that the person who kind of becomes the pan at the end of the movie is a fat black kid. Awesome. Yeah. Not great that his name is Thudbutt. What the fuck? (laughs) Yeah. That character's name is Thudbutt. Okay. Well, that's fine. I don't want to dig into the fat shaming of this movie. It's not fun. It's just there. Yeah. I like Rufio a lot as, as a character. He feels very real. And as the antagonist of the, of the third act, he works really well to compel the plot along in, mm. in ways and to kind of give it more something to bounce off of. Like, I'm glad that he has kind of stuck around as a character. Other things have Rufio's now because he is kind of the Harleen Quinzel of the Peter Panverse. <laughs> He is canonically murdered in uh, Once Upon a Time. And here, I forgot that he dies in this. I was sad. It's kind of a turn for the movie back into the horror tropes that we saw around the abduction of the kids. Yeah. We get that death scene and like that makes things are serious. And we get a same sort of thing when the kids are abducted. There's actually this really interesting shot where we see the bedroom window and the latch coming up. Hmm. The latch is specifically shaped like a hook, Mm -hmm. which I think was a nice touch. I do think a better touch, however, would have been for, you know, the small gap between the two windows for Hook to stick his hook through and lift up the latch with that. Yeah. I think that was a missed opportunity. It's really interesting, the, the use of horror stylings there. I think it really shifts the narrative and it helps move things into the fantastical. It feels very Hocus Pocus and I'm here for it. Mm hmm. But uh, with Rufio's death, that leads from it being a game to fight Hook to Peter Pan and Robert Williams being very angry in that very specific way that dads are angry about their kids. Seeing that anger in Robin Williams' eyes is really impressive. Because of Robin Williams' persona, I always forget that he can be very angry at times and mm-hmm. how impressive that is. Mm-hmm. It makes it so that Peter realizes that it's not just about him and his kids, that Hook is a danger to all of Neverland. And the world in general. Yeah. Hook needs to go. Mm -hmm. We haven't talked about Smee yet. We have not talked about Smee. Bob Hoskins here as Smee is fantastic. He has this great bit where it's just like Smee's bad stand-up that no one gets because he's more well-read than the people around him, and I feel that. Mm -hmm. A man so deep, he's almost unfathomable. A man so quick, he's even fast asleep. Thank you. 
There's so much of Hook's portrayal that wouldn't work with uh, Dustin Hoffman having Bob Hoskins, me, to bounce off of. Mm-hmm. They ratchet each other up so well, and it works amazingly. Mm-hmm. And Smee's also not afraid to be this very goofy, cartoonish figure, but in a different way, Mm -hmm. which is good. Smee doesn't ever have to get serious. He's always allowed to be this self-serving goof. Mm -hmm. I will say that at the end, they've left Neverland, and Peter Banning wakes up outside of the Darling House, and Bob Hoskins is there as like a street sweeper. Mm -hmm. Hello. Having trouble with the missus? You will have by the time of you get home. <laughs> and I don't get what's going on with that. I think that the movie's doing something and I don't think it works. So there are two two interpretations. Either that Smee has left Neverland for good and go legit, as it were. Or that it is insinuating that all of this may have been a dream. Which, to me, feels like probably an artifact of an earlier version of the script. I can see it. It doesn't actively detract things for me, but it, it there is some weirdness there. I think it does actually detract things from me because it's at the end and I don't know what to do with it. If it was just like a random one-off thing, like the idea that Captain Hook may have like read Peter Pan by Jam Barry, <laughs> that's fine, it's whatever. But like, if it's supposed to like be making a point or a button at the end of the story and it doesn't do so. The thing about the end of the movie that always sticks out to me is like Toodles flying away and saying, Haha, I see what you did there. <laughs> Referencing Dead Poet Society. <laughs> I don't know, like one last thing I want to hit on before we kind of finish off the episode. This is our second Steven Spielberg film that we've discussed in this bracket, actually. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to see the running theme, but through pretty much all Steven Spielberg films, or at least most of fatherhood, and how different fatherhood was portrayed in Jaws versus how it's portrayed here. Whereas in Jaws, we have Brady kind of being this, this absent father, but he doesn't really get called on it. It's kind of just secondary to most of what's going on in the film. And it never really gets touched on. It also doesn't imply that that's ever going to be resolved. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of how he is as a person. Whereas in Hook, we have Banning, who is the same distant slash absent father, but there's also a tinge of antagonism between him and his kids. And it's specifically portrayed in a much more negative light than Brady's ever was, but there's also that room for redemption there. I think a fun part of this is that the thesis about parenthood that the film seems to be making is that a bad parent loves their kids because the kids love them back, whereas Pan's lesson is about loving his kids even when they don't love him back. He learns how to love Jack even when Jack has stopped loving him because he's still his kid, which is a very complicated and nuanced lesson for Mm -hmm. him to learn. Mm Mm-hmm. A fun bit of trivia on the plane at one point, like a, a quick, like two sentence thing. Like, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Your captain once again. Please do not allow this wild turbulence to disturb you. That's Dustin Hoffman speaking. Oh, nice. Yeah, like fun joke. Mm-hmm. I guess we move into our end segment. As far as ship of Theseus, I don't really think we have much to discuss. Yeah, the Hispaniola is fine. Nothing bad really happens to it. It loses a lifeboat. Yeah, and then pirate ship is still. Functional. It's probably a little bit more beat up than the Hispaniola is, but yeah. we also don't really see it on the water. Mm-hmm. It's or just, in the air, for that matter. Yeah, it's just docked yeah. the entire film. Okay, so lay it out for me, because I have a thought here for this. 
What are the exact specifications for who gets to win the Fish of Theseus Award? I mean, typically it's been the ship that is most functional by the end of the film or specifically is interacting with the the idea of the ship of Theseus like we've had with pirates. In that case, I think that the Jolly Roger from Hook is a clear winner here because it is being constantly built and rebuilt by the broad idea of the imagination of children. <laughs> The Hispaniola, it exists in this movie and then goes away. There's no, it's not like a, it's a, the iconic version of this boat. Whereas Hook's ship is constantly like rebuilt and reused in different narratives and different stories and different iterations of this mythic retelling. Like Within the metaphysics of the world, his ship is created by imagination. Unless we forget about the Peter Pan myth as a whole, it will never be destroyed. It will always exist. Yeah, it is the archetypical idea of a boat. Uh-huh. <laughs> The archetypal idea of a pirate ship, specifically. Yes. Yeah, okay, fair enough. I will go ahead and concede that that is reason enough for it to get the Ship of Theseus award. Mm. These aren't on our bracket, so we don't necessarily have to like a one over the other. I do think they're both interesting. Both have pros and cons. Both are good showing to your kids kind of movies. Yeah. I do think Hook has a little bit more depth to dig into, especially for an adult audience. Yeah, well, it's also quite a bit longer, so it has more room to do so. Yes. Yeah, that kind of finishes it off with two very nice films we had a lot of fun talking about. So yeah, that brings our Bracket on a Boat to a close. Mm -hmm. Next week, we're going to be starting our Bride of Monster Bracket. Yeah, it's, finally, it's very nice to like finally get off of ships and be on... Oh, Alien. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh darn it. Next week, we're going to be kicking off our Bride of Monster Bracket with Alien versus Colossal. The two different poles of horror, I think. Kind of, yeah. One is honestly almost an action film, and most of the films, most things that have followed it are very action-heavy, especially the Prometheus series. And one is more about internal dread and the horrors of man. Hello, Alex from the Future here. Uh, just wanted to give a quick couple content warnings for our upcoming films. For Alien, content warnings for body horror gore, and what could probably be best described as sexualized violence. And then for Colossal, content warnings for alcoholism and abuse. Hope this helps whoever needs it, and catch you all next week. If you want to be aware as soon as that episode goes live, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, wherever you catch your pods. We're also still open to guesting for any episode on this bracket. Uh, so if you are a woman who would like to come on and talk about stuff, please let us know. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pods and Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.